So what do you think sex is, Mandy? Isn't that what two people do together when they love each other, Betsy? No. So sex is not a function of yes or no, please. I would like that. Advanced warning would have been really nice to have when I was going through my parenting years. I think we would all agree with that. But unfortunately, kids don't come with directions. It's a boy. Or it's a girl. So gender is a social construct. You want them to have the Barbie because that's a girl toy. And I hope you don't feel like you're a terrible parent at this point. Women who are assertive in their jobs come across as bitchy. But men who are assertive in their jobs are just good at what they do. Right. They're CEO material. No, Mr. McLean never cleaned the house. He just stood there and made sure she did it right. You know, they looked at, at your junk and said it's a girl or it's a boy based on your external anatomy. So I'm, I'm a family and consumer sciences teacher and I haven't had a boy in the class yet. When we look across the board at a lot of the most famous chefs, which is cooking. All male. And when we look at a, a lot of the famous hairdressers. All male. And when we look at all the famous design clothes designers. Also all male. Right. So what happens? Where is the disconnect? Don't, 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 don't. <laughs> Hey, it's Dr. B. And Mandy Johnson. And thanks for joining us. This is our season one. It's not human sexuality. And this is episode three. And today we're going to be talking about sex, assigned gender, gender identity, and gender. As an aside, I want to let you know that my assigned gender and my gender identity match. So that makes me cisgender. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. what do you think sex is, Mandy? Isn't that what two people do together when they love each other, Betsy? No. So biologically, um, I'm going to explain to you how all of these come together. Sex is rooted in biology. And so we have XX and XY. And yes, I understand that there are caveats from this. But for the sake of this discussion, we're going to speak directly to the concept of XX and XY. And so it's understood that if a fetus is XX, it will exhibit external reproductive anatomy that of female or woman, girl. And so a it, vulva. Yes, exactly. That's Yes, vulva from our last episode, because that's all you can see, right? And then if uh, the fetus is XY, the um, body will exhibit that of an anatomy of a male, and that would comprise of? The penis and the scrotum that we can see. Exactly. And that is sex. So sex is not a function of yes or no, please. I would like that. It's a function of this is rooted in biology and basically is not going to change with respect to our chromosomes. But the important thing about that is, is that when uh, a baby is born, they look between the legs and based on what we see, right, we say it's a boy or it's a girl. And what do we call that? We call that assigned gender. Right, assigned gender. You you didn't have a say in it. You were assigned this simply based on your external anatomy. And of course, the external anatomy, we're making the assumption, was influenced by you being either XX or XY. So that's sex and assigned gender. But as kids grow up and as they start to develop and their brain starts to mature and somewhere around the age two or three, they start to develop their own identity of what we call gender identity. And and can you help me explain that? I believe this is just the way we feel either as a male or a female. I know when I was a little girl and people said, are you a boy or a girl? I'm a girl. So for you. We're told. Exactly. So for you, your external anatomy. My external anatomy matches my gender. assigned gender. Right. So your external anatomy and your assigned gender and your gender identity 
match. We call that cisgendered, right? Everything is the same. But for some people that doesn't happen, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But that's sex, assigned gender, and gender identity. Now, so what is the concept of gender? Gender is kind of a function of masculinity, femininity, androgyny, Kind of the the way we exhibit our personalities. personalities. Exactly. So gender is a social construct. It's something that we um, are influenced by our surroundings, but also have internalized our gender identity to maybe mold into how we want to express the social construct of gender. So gender is mostly and a lot based in personality. Like you said, masculine, feminine, androgynous, which is androgynous is a mixture of both the masculine and feminine traits. So let's go back to your gender identity. We just talked about how your assigned gender and your gendered identity match. We called you cisgender. So what do we call that if we don't match? If we don't match, we call that transgender. Right. And then this person may be classified as uh, gender variant or gender discordant, or we may even call them gender dysphoric. And those are some of the technical terms that we use. But Really what it means is the assigned gender, what they saw between your legs and your gender identity, how you feel in your head, don't match. So there you have it. You have sex, XXXY. You have assigned gender. We're going to look at your plumbing when you're born and say it's a boy or a girl. You have gender identity, which is how you feel in, in, your, in your thought process and in your expression. And gender is your personality. And those how, that's how that all ties together. But now let's talk about you as a person. We have socializing agents, and there are four of them. And Anne Oakley writes in her book, Sex, Gender, and Society, that these four major socializing agents are parents. Parents, uh, peers. Media. And teachers. Yep. And we have to think about how those are going to affect our youth as they're going through this whole process of emotional and psychological and sociological maturation, right? Yes. Okay, so I, after I had children, my father would tell me that parenting is the hardest job in the world. He went on to tell me that it's a job we learn in hindsight, which makes for huge disadvantage when raising children. Advanced warning would have been really nice to have when I was going through my parenting years. I think we would all agree with that. But unfortunately, kids don't come with directions. And they're all different, and maybe what worked on one child may not work on another. But I think it's important to recognize that under parents, we have some other behavior that we do that also can be beneficial and maybe not beneficial as we are raising our young. But certainly affect our youth. Definitely affect our youth. And the first one is called manipulation. And We don't like to think as parents that we manipulate our children, but unfortunately on a lot of levels we do, especially like, let's say we're potty training. I'll give you a jelly bean if you pee in the toilet, right? Yes, absolutely. Bribery. Bribery form of manipulation. And the worst form of manipulation is working in a concept of gender binary bias, right? Male, female, and sticking to that. These are girl toys. These are boy toys. These are girl colors. These are boy colors. Yep. These are girl clothes, boy clothes. And one of the ways we do this with respect to manipulation in that gender binary is take them shopping for toys. So let's say you went to a store and you explained to your young one that they're going to get a toy. And so they walk up to G.I. Joe and say, I would like G.I. Joe. And they say, well, honey, 
that's really a boy toy. That's for boys. And you say, but I really want G.I. Joe. And they say, well, that's for boys. And wouldn't you rather have a Barbie? Exactly. And then you want it, you really, you know, you're all in on this one, right? You want them to have the Barbie because that's a girl toy. And you think you have a little girl, right? And finally you say, hey, it's Barbie or nothing. And this little person's going to go, well, I really want a toy. So I'll take Barbie. That is a function of manipulation. And maybe we've all been guilty of it, but I think it's something to be aware of when we're talking about the gender binary and manipulation with respect to expression. I definitely think you see that in the household as well when you say things like, hey, come help me in the kitchen to your little daughter and the little boy goes outside and helps dad in the yard. Exactly. And that is... Uh, a true function of uh, another concept that parents do that we call channeling, where we say little girls do this and little boys do that, and we raise them in what we call gender-specific roles. And what's fascinating about that is I was just lecturing at a uh, class here at CSU, and we were talking about gender-specific roles, and one of the students was commenting that in in his econ class, mind you, that they were talking about why women are paid differently than men is because they're raised in these gender-specific roles. And I had to chuckle because I said, if we can get away with the, you know, just do away with gender-specific roles, perhaps we could solve the pay gap. (laughs) I wish it were that simple. So moving along, one of the other things that parents do is what we call verbal appellation. And this this is a big, big deal. And it's how we speak to our young. So... A lot of times um, we use words like princess, um, fragile, uh, delicate, beautiful when we're describing little girls. And for little boys, we use things like rough and tumble, rambunctious, rambunctious, assertive. And these are, again, subscribing to a gender binary and channeling or using verbal appellation or or verbal cues to how kids will respond. And one of the biggest things that I think comes out of this is that that we are reinforcing certain behavior just with words. And we may not think that that's important, but it really is. When we put people in boxes, they can't explore outside of that. So it all ties into the fact that little girls are princesses and little boys are brutes. And, and I'm going to give you a perfect example of this with respect to how it comes to behavior. When we have a little girl who is, a, is rambunctious or she is a go-getter, let's say she's playing soccer and she's a go-getter and she might be assertive. One of the coaches might say, well, your daughter is very aggressive in her play. And I'd be like, whoa, back that up. Let's reevaluate what you just said. She's assertive and I'm not going to you know, squash that behavior at all because she's a go-getter. Women can do that. They're not aggressive. And if a, if a young boy wants to show emotion, that's okay as well. We don't need to say big boys don't cry. This is a, a function of words that we're using that we don't understand later on have huge impact with respect to forming the binary of gender. And I'd say that happens even well into adulthood when women who are assertive in their jobs come across as bitchy, but men who are assertive in their jobs are just good at what they do. Right, they're CEO material. And so we have to get rid of the gender binary tags that we put on language because it does follow us throughout life. And that's something to be aware of. The next thing we talk about is called activity exposure. And this is what Mandy was alluding to earlier. Come into the kitchen with me and bake cookies when we talk about little girls. 
little boys mow the lawn and do things like that because those are boy jobs. And so when we talk about activity exposure, it's really important that we don't have this gender exposure in the home, but more importantly, in the classroom. You're in the classroom a lot. I am every day. And so you know that there initially is just gender bias in the classroom because most teachers are female. Right. And so I think one of the things we sometimes might see in the classroom is where we would have a teacher who, every and I saw this in preschool where the kids are sitting around in a circle and all the little girls are paying attention and the little boys are picking at each other or playing with a car in and front of them. And boys will be boys? Oh, and see, we don't get to say that, right? So what happens is the teacher knows that the girls are engaged. She knows that the boys aren't. So she'll throw out a question and the little girls will raise their hand. They'll go, oh, oh me, me, pick me, pick me. I know the answer. I know the answer. And what she'll do is she'll say, Scott, what do you think about that? And Scott was, I don't know, on a different planet. He's playing with his neighbor. He was rolling a car across his lap. And all the little girls are defeated and they put their hand down. They go, because he didn't get called on. And this happens year after year after year in the classroom. It's not because the teacher is a bad teacher. It's because the teacher is trying to engage all of their students. The little girls are engaged. Maybe the little boys aren't. And so what happens over the years, by the time they hit middle school, they start, the girls start to check out. They start to go, oh, I'm not going to get called on. This isn't important. And the Nobody boys, wants to hear my voice. Nobody wants to hear my voice. And then this is when the boys start to kick in. And at that point, this is why partially studies show that girls don't go into the technical sciences like math and engineering, because around middle school, they're not really encouraged. But luckily, we now have programs like GEMS, GEMS right? Gender Equality in Math and Science, that need to promote that. So in wrapping up what parents do, and I hope you don't feel like you're a terrible parent at this point, but we have the form of manipulation, channeling, verbal appellation, and activity exposure. So what are some of the things that you can do as a parent to try and avoid falling into these socializing traps? Well, we can look at trying to raise your, your kid in a gender neutral environment. And this doesn't mean not using pronouns or things like that. What it means is just sort of being aware of how are you divvying up duties, right? What toys are you letting your kids play with? Right. And what clothes is, are clothes important? Are you telling your daughter those are boy shorts or you're telling your son that's a girl color you know those are some of the flags that you can be aware of as you as you're saying them to say it doesn't really matter because there aren't boy and girl clothes I think for me the easiest thing was just to let my kids like what they wanted to like and encourage whatever it was they were into at the time Exactly. If, that, if that meant rough and tumble play outside for my daughters, then so be it. That's what that means. And then the flip side of that is if they want to come inside and sew and clean and do that, they can as well. And I think you shouldn't subscribe gender to that. So that's one of the ways you can get around, you know, falling into that gender binary trap. Keep in mind, as Mandy was stating, your kids will find their path, but you have to let them find it. I think the other thing parents need to realize is that they're modeling for their kids all of this as well. And if the two parents in the household are divvying up by, by gender, the, the right. household chores, then that, that's what their kids are going to see no matter how neutral they t- try to be in the way they raise their kids. Exactly. Kids are also watching what's happening in the household. Right. And so really maybe a model that you can go by is you don't have gender specific roles in your household, but maybe people take on chores and duties based on desire and ability. I just have to say that's a lot of thinking to have to do as a parent. (laughs) Like it's not hard enough. I know. But if we, you know, if you listen to this podcast, you can replay it and replay it and replay it. 
let's go on to teachers. And I know, Mandy, you're a really good teacher because I've seen you in the classroom and we've team taught together. And so we talked about the gender bias in the classroom and I already gave some examples of how that happens. So give, give me some of your experience in that regard. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I teach a, a topic that's heavily female biased, right? So I'm, I'm a family and consumer sciences teacher, which used to be known as home ec. So it's right. pretty traditionally female. And uh, depending on the class that I teach, you can see how traditionally female this, this subject area is. If I'm teaching my early childhood education class, I, I have yet to have any boys. Really, um, th- I'm starting my third year of this program at the school I'm at, and I haven't had a boy in the class yet because we're talking about working with little kids, and that's a traditionally female um, role. But if I teach a class where people get to cook and eat, boys will show up because they like to eat uh, and they want the food. And they're not there because they are dying to learn how to cook. They just know they're going to be able to eat. Okay. And that that is one of those big differences. And the kids will tell me that. I mean, the boys aren't shy to tell me that, they're just here for the food. Um, but we, we teach a fashion class. Also, very few boys take that class. But when you go up to the shop where, you know, the engineering classes, as they're called now, you're looking at traditionally all boys, very few girls in the classroom. So what's interesting to me about that is when we look across the board at a lot of the most famous chefs, which is cooking. All male. And when we look at a lot of the famous hairdressers. All male. And when we look at all the famous design, clothes designers. Also all male. Right. So what happens? Where is the disconnect from high school to the outside world when the young girls are motivated to study this, but yet maybe not pursue it in that regard? It's a good question. I've asked it myself several times. So when you teach the class, you obviously, these fellows show up because they want to eat. They take the class because they like food. But how do they feel about learning how to cook? Oh, they like it once they're there. Right. So they, they, they enjoy the heck out of it. They don't think it's women's work. Not at all. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Although I will say that a lot of times I have to encourage a little bit more heavily the boys to help with the dishes. I was just going to ask that, but again... It, I, wish, uh, I wish that that wasn't true, but it is. If you have a, a small group that's got males and females, the boys have to tend to be a little bit more encouraged to help with the cleanup. So do you think it might be an interesting um, sociological experiment of instead of encouraging the boys to not do dishes, but to ask the girls to step back and not jump in to do the dishes. It it would be fun to try. All right. So of the four socializing agents, parents, teachers, peers, and media, we've talked about parents and teachers. So let's talk about peers. I hope by now you're starting to realize that even though parents are part of the four topics that we're talking about, they have the least amount of time mostly with our youth, right? Because teachers and peers and media are going to log in pretty heavily. And we know that kids that are in school are going to be exposed to teachers for a good portion of their day. But they're also going to be around peers. And peers at this age has a different definition than when we get older. So peers when we're younger is typically somebody your own age, somebody you usually see in class or hang out with, or maybe a friend down the street. That's a peer. But the important thing to understand about peers is no matter how involved a parent you are, and, and we know there are a lot of them out there, kids will pretty much rely on their peers for information. Peers have a much bigger influence than we like to admit most of the time as parents. Right. And so, and one of the person, one of the researchers a long time ago that really looked at that was Joseph Campbell. And if you ever had the chance to read or listen to his uh, 
documentary on the power of myth, he writes that peer activity often results can result in gangs forming because for for kids, they're looking for a sense of connectedness and family and ritual. And if they may not be getting that at home, they may form a gang. Now, Prior to that, they're probably going to just form a clique because we know most kids don't join gangs. But in that regard, the reason we form cliques or they form cliques is to feel safe and included. But in the same regard, a clique can also reject them and then they can feel lost and alone. So it's a really rough world out there for our kids. And peers are one of the toughest critics we have. And do a lot of changing of who you are to try to impress those peers and get into those cliques and trying on new personalities to see which one you fit into best. But I see a lot of kids get lost in this in right. high school, trying to trying to find the right peer group for them and trying to fit in with all the people around them. And it's unfortunate to see how many not great decisions are made just based on peers alone. Okay. And the interesting thing about peers is we have that dreaded thing called peer pressure. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and I think that's what you were referring to is that peer pressure is a concept that has our youth make decisions that maybe they're really not ready to understand or to be accountable for the outcome because they don't have enough information going in. But peer pressure is the most incredibly formative, manipulative form of being that I think our youth are exposed to. Well, and I think it's interesting because when most people think of peer pressure, they think of some kids saying, do it, just smoke this, just drink this. <laughs> but really peer pressure a lot of times doesn't even involve another peer saying something to you. It's just the drive to fit in and you think you have to do these things to impress these people. It's not that they're asking you to do them. It's not that these kids are out here saying, do the bad thing. But kids are making their decisions based on what they see their peers doing or think their peers might be doing. And a lot of times what their peer they think their peers are doing, their peers aren't even doing. And that is an incredibly valid point. Incredibly valid. I, you know, when we think your peer is having sex in high school, but really they're not, but that's the gossip going around school. You have peer pressure. Well, I want to be like that. Uh, but the other important thing that we need to understand about peers is they don't always tell the truth. Wow. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> So basically, they lie to each other. And they don't think they really mean to lie to each other. I think that some of the things that they spew as fact, they actually believe to be fact. And we can thank the internet for that. So let's move on to the final socializing agent, which is the media. And this is everywhere. And by media, I don't just mean music. I mean TV. um, Movies, magazines. Movies, magazines. uh, Books, all of it. Yep. And in my day, of course, and this is dating myself, but it was MTV when they started to hit the scene, right? And so then we had videos to go with the words. And of course, that was based on the interpretation of the artist, right? Absolutely. So when we're talking about the media and we're, we were talking about gender specific roles and gender bias, we have a lot of that in the media. We have a lot of gender manipulation, would you say? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And not all songs do this and not all artists do this. Um, And not all commercials do this. But up until recently, we really never had a commercial where we saw a man cleaning the house. What about Mr. Clean? No, Mr. Clean never cleaned the house. He just stood there and made sure she did it right. Looked good with brute strength. Yes, exactly. But did you ever see him pick up a broom? I did not. Right. But so now we're starting to see a lot more commercials, you know, with men cleaning, dusting, using a Swiffer, 
right? I've yet to see the toilet cleaning thing, but I, you know, I don't watch a lot of commercials. One step at a time. <laughs> exactly. So if we have our youth that are growing up where men are not cleaning or doing dishes, this might be what you're running into in the classroom because as you just said, they watch and learn, right? And the flip side of that is we don't have a lot of commercials showing girls or women under the hood of a car at AutoZone and, or building houses. And that might be why when you go to your engineering classes and you look at the enrollment, it's mostly... It's mostly male. Right. And so you can see how powerful medial influence can be on both sides of this aisle. Watch and learn is important. And so medial influence with respect to not conforming to the gender binary is critical in this avenue. So how do we encourage corporations to bend the gender binary and and have this not occur? That's a very good question, Betsy. Do you have thoughts? I do have thoughts on that. Uh, So I think social outcry is obviously a really good one, right? And one of the things that we see in media with respect to influence is this heterosexual bias, right? Man, woman, family, two-car garage, mowing the lawn kind of thing. And lately, we're starting to see more commercials with same-sex couples, two women having a family, two men having a family. It sure seems like that gets a lot of attention on social media when it it happens. It certainly does. And a lot of those companies are threatened with boycott from people who and organizations who don't like seeing this heterosexual bias being uh, challenged. But I can tell you, I think it's really healthy. And I think it's certainly something that I hope corporations will continue to present and will continue to ignore some of that public outcry. Because the flip side of that is they're also getting a lot of social support from people who really want to see more of this. And that's part of medial pressure, not just songs and language, but what we put on TV with respect to specific gender roles or specific family identity. So all the things that we just talked about when we talked about media, peers, teachers, and parents all have a big influence on our gender and our gender identity. Exactly. Or how we express our gender, I suppose. Right, because gender is the social construct. So sort of to to revamp, sex is rooted in biology, XX or XY. We know that there are variations. Assigned gender is looking at... What the doctor tells you you are. at birth. You know, they looked at at your junk and said it's a girl or it's a boy based on your external anatomy. Uh, Gender identity is what you identify in your head or your psyche or your your disposition. How you feel inside. How you feel inside, exactly. And then gender is the social construct. And all of those are what we talked about with the four socializing agents of parents, teachers, peers, and the media. Awesome. So this is Betsy Cairo. And Mandy Johnson. And if you'd like to hear more of what we have to say or you need more information regarding what we just talked about, you can read it just at www.lkbthwis.org. That's lookbothways.org. Or you can call us at 970-667-9906. You can also reach us by email at info at lookbothways.org. Yep. But we hope you stay with us because our next episode is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be talking about sexual identity and sexual behavior. I'm super excited to hear about it. Can't wait. Coming up on episode four. I used to think I was a freak or there was something wrong with me because I don't even want to be sexual with myself. You can behave how you want that day, but that doesn't change your identity. And I just thought that... I was really weird, but you've normalized that for me, and I feel so much better about myself. He can identify as anything he wants. That shirt you're wearing, not gay. 
My shirt doesn't have an orientation? It does not. Why do you think that happens? Because people suck. (laughs) (laughs) It's all I got, Betsy. It's all I got. (laughs) This type of education is critical, so nobody's in the closet. Nobody feels that suicide is their option when they're between the ages of 15 and 24, or any age in general. Stick around for episode four of It's Not Human Sexuality. This podcast was mixed, mastered, and edited by me, Hannah Copeland. For more episodes, go to lkbthwis.org. Imagine how far a little bit of education about this can go. Go, 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 go.